The Blindside Podcast is not associated or affiliated with my current employers and is voluntarily recorded and produced on my own time. This is Blind Metal Gamer, and you're listening to the Blindside Podcast. Streamed live at twitch.tv slash blindmetalgamer. Hello everyone, Blind Metal Gamer here. It's now time for another episode of the Blindside Podcast. In this episode, my guest, Kentucky Bluebud, will be telling her story and sharing what it was like to grow up in the 1960s with a disability. Please hold any questions till the end, and if there are any comments in the chat, I will monitor those. All I ask is that they please be kept respectful, and this presentation is being recorded for future distribution. So without any further ado, Kentucky Blue Blood, the floor is yours. Thank you, Blind Metal Gamer, for having me on tonight. Uh, Welcome everyone that's listening in. I'm going to talk, I want you to think about being a little kid in the 1960s and not having just one sibling with a disability, but having three siblings with a disability. And they not only had a disability, but they had a rare, very rare disease. It was called a rare disease. Um, so in the 60s, you know, if you were born after say the 90s, things were a lot different than they were in the 60s. Um, So right away when they were born, they were, uh, my parents were advised to institutionalize them. And um, a lot of this I found out as an adult, as a little child, I didn't know that. But probably my first memories would be like in the first grade Uh, The neighbors complained about the noise from, uh, at that time, only my my brother and sister were born. There were only two of them, but, you know, they cried. Um, So the neighbors complained and the state came in and they said that they put my sister in an institution by the court. Uh, Actually, they said they sent her to Frankfurt State Hospital but I could find no record of that. Uh, we have researched all the institutions and documented the history of all the institutions and schools in Kentucky. And I'm going to share that website. Uh, if you want to put that in the chat box, it's uh, www.kyhi.org. And some of their stories is, is on there and uh, some of Other people's stories are on there. But what they did back then in the 60s and before, they would send people to the institutions. And sometimes people would think they were sending them away to like a training school, you know, to where they could learn and and get better and, you know, be able to take care of themselves. So a lot of times the parents were deceived because I hear a lot of people think, you know, people didn't want their kids to go to these institutions, but if they did send them, they thought it was, you know, that they, it might be better for them. But anyway, I'm going to start out with a narrative. We were working on a book or a documentary and, and kind of give, go uh, with that narrative. Um, 
The 1960s were a bad time to be born with a disability. My sister Alice was born in 1960, my brother Jeffrey born in 1961, and they were followed at Cincinnati Children's Hospital since they were infants, uh, and that's who recommended them be placed in institutions. They had a genetic condition called Marinensko-Sorgren syndrome, which includes intellectual disability, cataracts, ataxia, and very small in stature. And it's caused by a mutation in the um, SIL1 gene on chromosome 5. And the gene has been identified. There's up to 200 cases reported in the whole world to date. And my uh, three siblings were in the first 36 cases. They were studied at Children's Hospital. All of my siblings were studied at Children's Hospital. um, And we were written up in the pediatric journals. So basically what happened, we kept them at home as long as we could. um, About 14 or 15 years. And then um, as older siblings started to, you know, graduate and get married and age out of the house, leave the house, and we were the caregivers. So basically we called them the three babies because they stayed like little babies. And then there were the four girls. So um, what happened when we started aging out, they had to be uh, taken away by the state uh, because there were no services in the community. My mom and dad didn't get any kind of Medicaid. As to my knowledge, there was no Medicaid for them. My dad had to stay at the same job to keep Blue Cross, you know, insurance. And uh, there were no day services. There was nothing. And they could not go to school. Like when, when us four girls went to school, they stayed home. They didn't get on the bus with us. They weren't allowed to go to school. I didn't even know how to verbalize that. I don't can't even imagine when I was thinking why they didn't go to school with us, but um, they also couldn't go to church. They got kicked out of the church nursery, and we were told not to bring them back. And uh, so basically what happened, uh, Jeffrey and Michael, or Jeffrey and Alice, the two oldest, had to go be put in an institution down in Louisville. And um, they were put in restraints basically 16 hours a day. We did not know that when we let them go there, but um, we found that out later. So what happened within the first year, my sister uh, died in her restraint. I'm not going to go into the details of it. If you want to read about it, her death notice is on our website. Again, that's www.kyhi.org. But basically, the headlines in, in the newspaper blamed her death on herself. It says, retarded teen strangled self. <laughs> so anyway, um, we didn't know at the time. We thought that was an isolated incident. Um, but uh, more research on that site for Hazelwood shows there were several deaths 
around the time of hers and that the court did investigate them, but nothing happened. Um, so there was an incident after that, uh, about a month after she died there, my mother went down there to see Jeffrey. He was still there cause they left together cause they were always together the whole life. The three babies were always together, but Michael got left behind and Jeffrey, uh, so Jeffrey was left at the institution where she had died and they were having lunch. And, uh, when they got up from the table, he pointed to my mom, like to his waist, like to restrain him. So they were still restraining Jeffrey after Alice died that way. Uh, and basically what they did was use the restraints as a babysitter for people with intellectual disabilities and, uh, developmental disabilities that were in the institution because I guess they didn't have enough uh, attendance or whatever. Um, but that's my, that's my opinion of it. Uh, but when I did finally get records from Hazelwood, it showed they were restrained, both Alice and Jeffrey, 16 out of 24 hours a day. So restraints is a big issue with me, and we're going to talk about that a little more because there's legislation in all the states, and it's an international issue, too, in case you're listening out of the country. Um, but we need to stop restraining children. If they survive it, it's very traumatic. It's traumatic for the family if they die or they're harmed. You know, we live with that memory. My family has to live with that memory, and that's why I'm very determined to get some restraint legislation in Kentucky before I die. So I hope everybody will get behind that. Um, so anyway, um, so after Alice died and Jeffrey, uh, my mom found Jeffrey in restraint, she wrote a scathing letter to, I guess the nuns and the priests, the Catholics were running it to them. Uh, about Jeffrey being in the restraints. Uh, but what could she do? Think about her as a parent. It kind of hurt my heart, you know, like my poor mommy. I was happy to find that letter, but I'm like, oh my God, she had to be heartbroken. She probably just wanted to pull him out of there and bring him home, but she couldn't do it. So I think of the agony of the parent that has to leave that child and deal with the state and, and the state is not a, is not a good parent. And the state is not good for the family to deal with. It's very difficult for the family to navigate the state. So anyway, you'll see, I get sidetracked here and there, but, um, so after that, then Jeffrey got sent down to Oakwood down in Somerset, Kentucky. And then eventually Jeffrey got to come back to Northern Kentucky, which is, the community we are from. And that was before 99, which is when we got Olmstead, uh, cause there's a couple of, of, uh, legis important pieces of legislation. I want to talk about, you know, how, how their lives were affected by it. Like, uh, then when he was at, uh, Somerset, he got to go to school. See, and that's the first time in their life, any of them got to go to school that I knew about for him and Alice. So, um, so I'm going to update you on Michael a little bit and then go back to Jeffrey. 
So Michael was the baby of the family and he was less severe than Allison Jeffrey. Um, so the state did not put him in an institution. They gave him to a foster family, put him with a foster family. All three of them were nonverbal, but Michael could sing. So uh, Michael went to the foster family and then Michael did start going to school. I guess it was in the seventies, they changed the law and they had to go to school or they, you know, they were able to go to school. But just think about that. If you're, you had, you had to go to school every day, but your sister and brothers didn't, you know? So uh, there was a lot of stuff I have to say we were never told not to talk about it, but we didn't talk about it. And so that's why anytime someone gives me a chance to talk about it and talk about their lives, I talk about it because I don't want anybody to be treated the way they were. And, you know, I'd like us to quit institutionalizing people with disabilities or people at all, you know, uh, but anyway, I, the other parallel I've drawn was, uh, well, I'll, I'll go to that next, but Michael, uh, let me go back to Michael. So anyway, Michael um, got to participate in Special Olympics and then Michael was able to work and he worked at a place, uh, he stuffed envelopes, that was his job. And it's called a sheltered workshop. And uh, there's a movie called Bottom Dollars, and it talks about people with disabilities that basically are making sense on the dollar um, in these sheltered workshops. So he was really happy about working and getting his little paycheck, but he only got cents on the dollar. Think about that. And at the end, uh, the blind gamer is going to talk a little bit about his experience with sheltered workshop. Because that's something that's still, that's an old statute, I think, from the 1930s. You know, that was probably meant for something good, but it's antiquated now. And Goodwill, every state has these kind of sheltered workshops. Goodwill does it in Cincinnati. Uh, so just, you know, be aware of that. Uh, So that was, so anyway, Michael did that. I, I had no control over that because he was with a, a foster family. So then what happened, um, Jeffrey and Michael both were with foster families. And about 10 years after Alice's death, Jeffrey also died in a restraint at Children's Hospital. Unrelated to his disability, but... Um, Again, I'm not going to go into the details, but uh, that just, I just don't even have words for it. So after Jeffrey died that way, his foster parents sued Children's Hospital. And they exhumed his body and basically they did find he died from, you know, asphyxiation from being in the restraint. But then they decided there could be no lawsuit because his worth to society was zero because he could never work a real job like a, a able-bodied person could. So that was a hard slap in the face to find out. 
basically you can get killed if you have a disability and you're worth to society's nothing, so there's no civil suit. Um, you know, you find out some hard things as an adult, because like I said, a lot of this I didn't realize. Um, when we were growing up, the only thing there was was the ARC, the Association for Retarded Citizens, I think it's called. So I didn't really get involved in advocacy until probably around 1999. I didn't even know what advocacy was or what it was about. Um, and it's so important if you have a disability or you have a child with a disability, you've got to get involved. You've got to know everything you can about disability in your state. Um, so anyway, Michael, uh, Michael, Michael and Jeffrey had a decent quality of life. Alice did not. None of the three of them reached their full potential, though. That's the sad part, because there was no physical therapy. There was no kind of therapy, no kind of training, no kind of schooling for them. So, uh, but Michael did a little more, because like I said, he was younger. Uh, but the foster family he went to, the foster father ended up getting put in prison for sexually abusing the foster children. So there's that, you know, there's that. There's always something out there because they're very vulnerable for sexual assault and abuse. And if they're nonverbal, they really can't tell. Uh, so eventually Michael died about 10 years after Jeffrey. Uh, he, she said she got him up to give him some medicine and he choked to death in his sleep. So they all three choked to death. That's not part of the syndrome. And come to find out it's, it's not uncommon. If you start looking at the way people with disabilities are dying that are under the state care or um, in institutions. So um, I'm going to skip around here a little bit, but I want to talk uh, about how I got involved in becoming an advocate uh, was actually when I ended up with a mental health diagnosis and I was having some trouble trying to navigate the state. And I found our protection and advocacy in Kentucky. And uh, they helped me. And that's how I learned about rights. And then I started serving on their PAMI Council, which is for people with a mental health diagnosis. Uh, and they have a PAD Council, which is people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we did some joint advocacy when I was serving on their council and I served for them about eight years. But they, the protection and advocacy is in every state and they were formed after Geraldo exposed Willowbrook. So they weren't even there when my sister died in the 70s. They were just being formed as an agency. But they're a very, very important agency in every state. They might be under national disability rights but they, uh, they're the legal watchdogs in every state. So even if they, they don't take very many cases personally, but they take uh, cases that will make systemic change, like Olmstead. Uh, uh, so that's an important resource. Uh, 
and I met this other lady. She just wrote a book. Her name's Beverly Thompson. And I think she's on tonight, hopefully, if you are. Hi, Beverly. She wrote Antidepressed. Uh, and it's a breakthrough examination of epidemic antidepressant harm and dependence. And I read her book. And uh, it's really excellent for anybody that's thinking about taking antidepressants or psychiatric drugs or anybody that's on them that might want to get off of them. Uh, she's written a blueprint here. And I wanted to talk about her because her book just came out a couple days ago. But how I, I got better after I got off the medicine. I read Robert Whitaker's work uh, back in 2012. And I came off my medicine with, with my doctor, you know, but uh, that was a, an anomaly back in 2012. But what I found was a parallel between how people with a mental illness and how people with a disability were devalued in the system and in the processes. And it made me mad. So um, that's why I think... <laughs> I think we need to form an organization, you know, of people with all kinds of disabilities so we can share our advocacy and our, uh, you know, our, to sh share self-advocacy and share our resources and our, our, our lived experience is so valuable. When two advocates work, you know, we work together on a project, it's so much more powerful. I mean, whether it's working with legislators or working with another agency you're having trouble with, uh, there's just so much power and, and, and strength in numbers. So what part of my goal is I'm hoping uh, that we can start an organization, you know, with nominal dues uh, to share knowledge and information to have shows like this, you know, to talk about our, our issues and our, you know, our, our problems evaluate the people we get services from um you know i didn't choose this field i i was in the replacement glass business and i loved that i was the glass lady i didn't want to be the i don't even know what you call me here kentucky blue blood lady uh but i i'm passionate uh, about disability rights i'm passionate about us moving forward that it feels like we always get left behind and, and one thing I, I wanted to do uh, to five researchers that set up that website, we left everybody's name that was put in an unmarked grave. We named them and gave them a memorial on that website, KentuckyKYHI.org, uh, because that's what they did to people back then. If you died in the institution and your family didn't come and get you, they just put you in an unmarked grave right by the uh, facility. And, uh, you know, we've asked for a, an apology from Kentucky legislators because there are hundreds, probably thousands of people in these different institutions in Kentucky and across the United States that were devalued and abused in life there were people that shouldn't even have been there most of those people shouldn't have been there but uh you know and it's kind of the same with mental institutions as it is with the uh you know 
other disabilities. They separate, they segregated them back then. And that's the other reason why we need to unite. They segregate people with disabilities. So that drives me crazy. Uh, but you know, that's, those are things that are important to me. Those are my observations. Um, so I'm going to go on to one more thing. I, I think we're going to get done a little early, so we'll be able to go to questions a little early, but, uh, I thought I'd be able to talk an hour. Usually I don't shut up, but uh, I, I want to hear feedback too. So, okay, this restraint legislation is for the schools of in Maryland. Uh, I guess the Department of Justice investigated and they found like thousands of dollars of, of violations which violates the ADA, uh, which we've only had since like 1999. So I guess they made a deal and they, they got to change a bunch of stuff. So as a result of this, um, here's what they came up with. Prohibit the use of seclusion, report all instances of restraint and evaluate whether they were justified designate trained staff to collect and analyze restraint data and oversee the creation of appropriate behavior intervention plans. So basically more training and, and to stop the use of all seclusion is good, but um, we're gonna use Kentucky's, I, I've, I'm working with a legislator right now and he said he could use this same legislation Virginia used uh, for Kentucky, I'm not going to name him, but uh, you all probably know who he is. He's a great, he's he's only got one arm. <laughs> so that tells you who he is if you know our legislators. But he's a great guy and he's uh, very passionate about disability issues. So he's supposed to be drafting legislation to be introduced, hopefully this next session. Uh, so we'll keep following that. But the call to action is let's organize and let's please get involved against restraints and seclusion in your area. Uh, I think that's it. If you want to open it up to questions. The only other thing I was going to talk about was the Olmstead decision and the ADA because that's all we have for disability rights, you know, and, and we just got those both in the 90s. So we're still fighting for the same rights everybody else has. Yes, um, and Kentucky Blue Blood, I, I noticed that you said the ADA had been around since 1999. I would like to uh, give some uh, correct information for the listeners who might be listening either live or on demand uh the ada was uh signed into law on july 26th 1990 90 so i'm sorry olmstead olmstead is 99 right yeah olmstead. i'm sorry it, it's, you're, fine. you're fine you're fine okay now as kentucky blue blood alluded to earlier i'm gonna give a brief synopsis of my experience with subminimum wage yes your boy, Blind Metal Gamer, had an experience with subminimum wage. I talked about it in a previous podcast, a little more in depth, but this time I'm going to basically tell my story. 
and uh, give a little history. The uh, fair, the 14C certificates came into effect in 1938 as part of the Fair Standards and Labor Act. And what it allows employers to do is it allows employers to pay employees with disabilities, such as myself and whoever might have a disability, sub-minimum wage. So your able-bodied employees would get, you know, good pay and all this, but someone like myself might get X. Now, I use the X because you can just do the math and do the variables yourselves. Um, now, for me, my experience was I had graduated high school. It was um, the fall of two, or the summer of 2003. I worked at a place called FHI, and it's in my hometown. And I go to work there. I'm thinking, okay, factory work. They had me on a floor. And I was doing assortment of uh, work, such as uh, folding bags, preparing uh, wild turkey boxes, um, making counterweights, etc. You get the idea. And they basically pay. I went to get my first paycheck, and I looked at it, and it was only $34. I'm like, what? $34? Really? I thought, okay. There might be some fees that take out of the first one, you know, because I was a new employee. I was thinking probationary period. Uh, so I keep working there. Again, I'm getting these small, minuscule checks. I couldn't even support myself at the time. I couldn't support my family. Um, so basically, to put this into perspective, in 2003 economics, at that time, it, I couldn't buy my own groceries, uh, pay my own bills, like I do now. I could only buy a video game or a CD from a pawn shop or a music store in my hometown. That's the amount of money I was making. So I left there to pursue higher education, which didn't work out in my favor because I didn't have the supports I needed, the services I needed to succeed at it. So I, I quit that after a day and got the heck out of there because I knew that if I didn't leave, I was going to be failing and in a bad situation financially. So I leave and I, you know, did several things um, up till. The fall of 2009, well, actually, it began in 2008, the summer of 08. I was doing data entry for a church in my hometown when um, I met someone who helped me find my current position that I have now. Um, it started out in November of 2009. I started out on a front desk managerial position, uh, mainly just, you know, answering phones, greeting visitors, etc. Then the job evolved, and now I not only do the phones, greet the visitors, but I also take notes for various committee meetings and meetings related to my work itself. So for the past almost 13, it'll be 13 years this November, I've had a very good life. I've been able to support myself and family. I've been able to um, really invest not only you know in living, but in my hobbies outside of work, which is this Twitch channel and you know YouTube and things. So, yeah, it, it's changed my life completely. And if there is any, to all of you legislators in Kentucky or anywhere that might be listening or anyone that might be listening, if there is any piece of legislation that is to end sub-minimum wage. <coughs> ah, Blind Metal Gamer along with Kentucky Blue Blood urge you to talk to your legislators and have them support any bills that will end sub-minimum wage and close 
or phase out sheltered workshops in your area because they are wrong. They are unconstitutional. It's not right. And ever since that happened to me, I wanted to make an impact. And now where I currently work, I'm able to make an impact. So with that being said, there's no questions. I want to thank you, Kentucky Blue Blood, for joining me tonight and telling your story. And for those who will be listening on demand, if you have any questions, just follow Kentucky Blue Blood on Twitter at Kentucky Blue Blood, and you can ask her any of your questions or leave her any comments. With that being said, again, thank you, Kentucky Blue Blood. Do you have anything you would like to say before we sign off? Thank you, Blind Metal Gamer. Hey, no problem. All right, with that being said, this has been another episode of the Blind Side Podcast. For Kentucky Blue Blood, I've been your host, Blind Metal Gamer, saying so long, everyone, and peace out. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Blindside Podcast. You can find the Blindside Podcast on a plethora of platforms including Spotify, YouTube, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Tuning Radio, and much more. Be sure to follow on Spotify so you will not miss a single episode.